1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Give ear to the word of God today. John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for it, uh, that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And we ask once more that you might be pleased in your kindness to us in Christ to fill us with your Holy Spirit to uh, work in us what's pleasing in your sight, to teach us your word. Give us by your spirit eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word uh, and work in us that we might be doers of your word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been here for any length of time, uh, especially in recent months, you'll know that on Communion Sundays what we've been doing uh, for a long time, what our practice was, was to take a break from whatever series we were going through. And I was preaching through the Psalms on Communion Sundays, kind of one at a time in order. We made it quite a way through, and we're still going to keep uh, continuing that. But a number of months ago, I thought it would be a good idea for us to go through the Ten Commandments in order, one at a time, uh, on Communion Sundays. And for some of these, and really it should be probably all of them, I thought it would be a good idea for us to not only spend one Sunday you know, going over the, the text of the commandment itself from Exodus chapter 20, but also to uh, take another look at a different passage dealing with those commandments also. So, you know, it's good to look at the commandment itself, and it's also good to look at another text that kind of sheds some additional light on the commandment, whether it be an example of someone, you know, either breaking or fulfilling the commandment in a historical book or some other such uh, text. You might remember we looked at Exodus 20, uh, 8 through 11, about uh, the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. Remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then we looked at another passage from the book of Isaiah that shed some light on how we should treat the Lord's day as well. So we're going to do that, Lord willing, today as regards the commandment against murder, the sixth commandment. And as I was thinking about which, which text would be best for us to look at this morning that would shed some additional light on the sixth commandment, uh, I was thinking about all kinds of other texts, and I looked at the text we looked at last Sunday and the verses following it in 1 John, and I thought, well, maybe we don't have to take a break from 1 John after all because he's dealing with the subject of murder in the context of loving the brethren. So I thought that's what we do this morning. We look at this passage, and, and the, the text from 1 John 3 fits that bill quite, quite well. So in 1 John chapter 3, John teaches us about the importance, and he has been teaching us about the importance of, of the love of the brethren. Uh, but when he does this in chapter 3, as we've looked at last week, uh, he does this by speaking, uh, it might seem strange to us, 
but he does so by teaching us about the sin of murder in contrast to it. It's not exactly the thing that we might, you might have expected him to, uh, to jump into, but in doing this, he shows us how the command to love one another that he's mentioned in verse 11 in many ways involves the fulfillment both negatively and positively of the sixth commandment as it relates to other believers in particular. And so our text this morning in 1 John 3, it demonstrates for us the biblical rationale, the biblical basis for the way that the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains, as we saw last, last uh, time, both the positive and the negative aspects uh, of what is involved in obedience to this commandment. You know, just as we saw in our study of the Sixth Commandment from Exodus 20, verse 13, uh, a number of weeks ago, that the Catechism, the Shorter Catechism, teaches us both what is required by this commandment, in other words, uh, as it puts it, all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others, uh, question and answer 68, as well as what is involved negatively, what is expressly forbidden by this commandment, and that is the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatever tends thereunto, question and answer 69. So maybe when we looked at those two questions uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, maybe you thought, well, where does this idea come from in Scripture? Well, we're going to see, among other places, in our text in 1 John, John treats that commandment the exact same way. So really what the Westminster divines weren't taking liberties with the text. They weren't reading something into the text that wasn't there. They were following the example, the example of Scripture itself, which does these very things. It gives us the negative when it comes to the commandments, what's forbidden, as well as on the flip side, whether it be implicit or explicit, what is required of us positively by that same commandment. And so our text this morning uh, treats the subject of the sin of murder in much the same way, showing us that the Westminster divines were not superimposing their own ideas on the text of the scripture, but were really, they were, what they were really doing was being faithful interpreters of it. And so uh, for what does John teach us in our text this morning, but both what is forbidden by the sixth commandment and what does he say? He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and did what? Murdered his brother. And he even adds that to the extent that everyone who hates his brother, everyone who hates his brother is a what? Is a murderer, just like Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and he says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, and then he also tells us in our text what's required by the sixth commandment, doesn't he? He says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, verse 16. And that also, in addition to that, we should not close our hearts against our brothers who are in need when it's within our ability to help them. So he gives us both the negative and the positive of the sixth commandment in the context of love for their brethren. And so also in our text, John teaches us something that is really explicitly taught elsewhere in scripture as well, at least for sure by the Lord Jesus Christ, um, he, he tells us that all of this fulfilling of the sixth commandment, positively and negatively, really is involved. It, it's, it's a matter of loving the brethren. It's a matter of loving even our neighbor. What does Paul say in Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, for example? Paul says there, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments see here he, he connects the dots for us for the commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal 
you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, it's, remember what, when Jesus was, was asked what was the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, and what was his answer? It was really a twofold answer, wasn't it? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, second commandment, is like it. In other words, you can't separate them. You shall what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. So he's saying the entire law, all of God's commandments, uh, are a matter of love. And so, you know, many today, even in the church, even professing Christians, sad to say, many seem to have a habit of pitting love against obedience to God's commandments, as if love somehow made obeying God's law unnecessary. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? Teaches, is it? Does the Bible somehow pit love and obedience against each other? Is, is God's law or his commandments somehow unloving? No, by, by no means. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches us at all. In fact, love, love if it's actual love, obeys God's law. Love is the motivation for obeying God's law. And love itself, both love for God and love for our neighbor, ironically in some ways, is actually commanded, as we see, the greatest commandment is to love God. Well, how can you obey the command to love someone legalistically? You can't. It's, it's, it's inherently impossible to do that way. So this morning what I would like us to do is briefly look at one of the many applications of the Sixth Commandment, uh, specifically how the Sixth Commandment involves how it applies between Christians in that we are to love one another. That is certainly the way that John applies it to us in our text, really throughout our text after all, isn't it? So uh, the first thing we're going to look at this morning from our text briefly at least is the example of Cain. The example of Cain, verse 11, John starts off by saying this. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So as Christians, we know that we are to love, as we just read, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, Matthew 22:39. And where was Jesus quoting when he said that in Matthew's gospel? Leviticus 19:18. You might not think of Leviticus very often. Maybe we should. But the great commandment is part of it was from that, the book of Leviticus. Uh, so we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. But more importantly, we are to love, especially love, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are to love one another. You could say that if there was an ascending order or a descending order, uh, it, in some ways it is even more important that Christians love one another than that they love other people. Not that you can, can excuse yourself from loving other people outside of the church, but there's a sense in which just as you are to love the members of your family more than someone else's family, doesn't mean you don't love other people's families, but you are duty-bound to love yours more. In fact, what, is, what, is, what does Paul say in, in his writings to Timothy? If, we don't, if any man doesn't take care of his family, he's what? He's worse than an unbeliever. Worse than an unbeliever if he doesn't love his family and take care of them the way that he should. So, so John tells us there we are to love each other, especially our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And, you know, so far so good. You know, nobody bats an eye when you say love one another. In fact, I was reading ahead in First John and noticed John repeats that phrase, love one another, at least four times in this little book. 
So apparently it's a pretty common and important theme. But then John adds something in verse 12 that might seem kind of like a, a non sequitur, if I can use that phrase. You know, one of these things is not like the other. The thing you aren't expecting him to go to, he says, love one another. And all of a sudden he's like, don't murder. You know, don't be like Cain who was a murderer. You're like, well, I wasn't planning on, you know, doing any physical violence to anybody uh, in the church especially. Uh, it might seem like quite a leap to go from the commandment uh, to love one another to suddenly speaking of not being like Cain who murdered his brother. Why, why does John do this? Now, we, he, John is not here for us to ask. We can only assume and, and, and try to figure it out from the text. Why does John do this? Was John, are we imagining somehow that John was actually worried that some people in the church had forgotten that they shouldn't murder each other? And, oh, you know, announcement time came, you know, prayer time came. Oh, you know, sorry, but uh, Johnny must have forgot he wasn't supposed to be like Cain and he killed, he killed uh, somebody in the church. You know, our bad. We'll try not to let that happen again. Uh, no, obviously he's not thinking. It's kind of like it reminds me of it's a different subject. But Jesus talking to Nicodemus and telling him, you must be born again. And very often, you know, pastors fall all over themselves trying to explain, well, here's what he thought. And Nicodemus did not think that Jesus really meant he had to be physically born again. The problem is he didn't know what he did mean. He's like, certainly you don't mean this, but I have no idea what you're talking about. John, in a, in a similar way, is not suggesting uh, that people in the church were actually murdering one another in a, in a violent fashion. And that's, so what, what, is, what is the point? Why does John bring up Cain and murdering his brother? First, he's echoing the teaching of the Lord Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in his commandment to love one another. Um, what, is, what does Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount? He tells you that murder, uh, that hatred, is in many ways tantamount to murder. Remember he said before that in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, he says, if you've, if you've lusted, what have you done? You've committed adultery. It doesn't mean that, well, you might as well go ahead and commit adultery because you've lusted. Just like it doesn't mean, well, I've hated somebody, I might as well kill them because I'm just as guilty. But it does mean it is a hell-worthy sin. It is, worth, it is a sin, even if you never commit physical violence against another human being, hatred of them, if you did nothing else in breaking God's law, is a hell-worthy sin. It is a sin worthy of damnation. That is what Jesus is teaching and what John likewise is teaching. Hatred is not just the fountain from which the vile sin of murder flows, but in some ways, hatred is the equivalent of it as far as guilt before God. Matthew 5, 21 to 22, Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. He's quoting Exodus chapter 20. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Same phrase, liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the, to the hell of fire. In other words, just like he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Jesus is not contradicting Moses. He's not saying, remember Moses told you don't murder, but I'm telling you what he's saying is, here's what Moses meant. Here's what the, the law that God gave to Moses, these different commandments, here's what it actually always meant. It was never to be understood as strictly you know, restricted to the outward act. Now, certainly you aren't to do the outward act when it comes to the negative prohibitions, thou shalt not commit murder, adultery, and so on. 
But it's never just a matter of not doing the outward act. It's always been also including the heart. That's why the reformers and others have always talked about the spirituality of the law. What they're talking about is it reaches to the heart. Man's law is only reached to the outward action. God's law is reached to the very heart of the matter as well as the outward actions. So simply put, hatred or unjust anger is a sin that's worthy of hell. It is spiritual murder or murder in the heart, even if not of the person bodily. That's the point that Jesus taught and John is picking it back up in the same way. John very often, if you haven't noticed, if you read the Gospel of John and then read 1 John, you'll see John picking up or alluding to a lot of the phrases that Jesus himself taught in the Gospel and kind of you know, bringing them back up again and reapplying them. That's what he's doing here. Now, you and I would probably be justified in pointing out that the early Gnostics, remember that's the, the false teachers that John was, was uh, refuting here, uh, their, their teaching that John refutes throughout this letter, it isn't always on the surface, so to speak, uh, but they were in fact guilty of being like Cain in some ways. When, when John says, don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brothers, he's not just randomly throwing this out. He's contrasting the people, the, the believers in the churches to whom he's writing with the false teachers who were disturbing the peace and purity of the church in those churches. And he's saying that it's, it's those out there, the, the false teachers, that were guilty of, of murder in the sense that they were hating the brethren. How were the, the Gnostics and others hating the brethren? They were removing themselves or separating themselves from them. In chapter 2, verses nine, verse 19, he says, they, that is these false teachers, they went out from us, they left. Why? But they were not of us. In other words, they separated themselves from the true church, both in their teaching heresy and as well as in their false gospel. But it probably went beyond that. It probably went well beyond that. For in the teaching, their false teaching, the, the Gnostics held to, I won't belabor the point, but kind of the spirit-matter dualism where the, the spirit is all good and anything you know material or physical was evil and bad and shouldn't be and God was going to do away with it. In teaching that spirit-matter dualism, uh, you know, where they said that only the spiritual or immaterial was good, they may have gone so far as, and I'm, I'm guessing they probably did, go so far as to provide themselves and their followers with a, a sanctified excuse for not loving the brethren. Because what is the example that John brings up? If anybody has the goods of this world, the material goods that is, and sees his brother in need but heart closes his heart against him, in other words, I could help but I'm not going to. And we, you know, we, we all have ways of rationalizing that kind of, that kind of a thing, don't we? Well, they did it one step further. They, they did it with a theological rationale. Well, you know, I don't really have to do that. It's very pharisaical, isn't it? Remember Jesus, he rebuked the Pharisees from time to time because they would find ways to excuse their not helping those in need. And very often it, it had to do with the Sabbath, right? It is, it's almost as if Jesus, when you read the Gospels, it's almost like he had it on his calendar. Like, oh, I'm going to wait till the Sabbath to heal so-and-so and so-and-so to prove a point. You know, I'm not saying it wasn't, it wasn't as crass as that. But it's, it's, what did they attack him for most often? It was his doing good on the Sabbath, as if that could possibly be something that was uh, wrong to do. But I believe that the Gnostics and those who followed them probably used their, this dualistic mentality they had, this, this false doctrine, to excuse their not helping their brothers in need. 
Because the physical doesn't matter. Well, if they're suffering physically, it's no big deal. Why bother, why bother helping them? Um, after all, if the physical is evil, then neglect and even harsh treatment of the body is to be expected and probably in some ways even encouraged. And as always, false doctrine breeds false living. If you ever wonder, if you ever wonder well, what's the big deal about, about being, you know, why are we so persnickety about doctrine? Why do we have to be, you know, as, as Rob always says, the Puritans were called precisionists. Why do we have to be so, you know, precise and, and all these things? Why can't we just kind of, you know, go along and get along and not worry about what somebody teaches? Well, it's because false doctrine not only displeases God, but it also has consequences. What you believe, especially when, when it comes to things about the Lord, what you believe will affect, for good or for bad, how you live. It cannot help but be the case. And beyond that, I think John's aim in bringing up the wickedness of Cain and slaughtering his brother was almost certainly intended, I think, to have some kind of a, a little bit of shock value to it. It's not what you're expecting to see on the page when you're reading, and all of a sudden he's talking about, and he doesn't just say murder. Like the word he uses for murder there, it's translated murder for good reason, but it's the same word that's often used for slaughtering animals. And there's some real irony there when you think about that. What, what did Cain refuse to do before he killed his brother? What, what did God tell him? You know, basically, you know what you're supposed to do. Remember both brothers, they brought a sacrifice to the Lord, and, and Abel was a, was a keeper of flocks, and so he brought of the fat portions of one from the flock. In other words, he sacrificed probably a lamb. You know, there was no text before that, you know, that, we, that we know of saying that's what you're supposed to do. But they knew what they were supposed to do. But what does it say about Cain? Cain was a, was a tiller of the ground. You know, he grew produce, things like that. Nothing wrong with that, right? But what did he try to do? He tried to come to God on his own terms. And he said, oh, I'm going to bring a sacrifice of what I'm doing. It's as, it's as if he's saying to God, I, I know that you want me to do this. I'm going to approach you my own way. And so what happened? Abel and his sacrifice, God accepted and with favor, and Cain's sacrifice, what happened? Cain and his sacrifice were rejected. And there's a strange phrase there. It says, Cain's face fell. You know, he was angry. It, it his anger showed on his face. You know, I'm not going to try to you know, figure out what that looked like or, or, or pantomime it or whatever, but you know, his face fell. And God comes to him and says, and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, what are you so angry about? Why is your face fallen? If you do what's right, if you do what you're supposed to do, will you not be accepted? You know what you're supposed to do. You just won't do it, right? So it was a matter of the heart, but it was also a matter of the outward, uh, of the act of the, of the sacrifice. He was trying to come to God on his own terms. And, and what's missing when you're bringing God a, a, an offering or a sacrifice of the fruit of the ground without the shedding of blood, Hebrew says, today's a Hebrew Sunday, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission of sins, so, you know, Cain, I, this is a whole different sermon. I won't go off on this too much more. But, you know, Cain is not only trying to come to God on his own terms, he's denying apparently his own sin. Or he's trying to find his own way to, re, to the reconciliation with God. And we can't do that. Cain was the father of all false religion. And all false religion is, is, is bound up in one, one or two things, really both. One, attempting to come to God on your own terms, not God's terms. And two, it's, it's an attempt to come to God on the basis of your own works. The one, the one thing that unites all false religions, no matter what they may be, 
and distinguishes them from Christianity, the true Christianity that's taught in the Bible, is Christianity is a religion of grace, salvation by grace. Every false religion in some way, shape, or form boils down to a religion of works where we try to come to God on our own terms, which can never be done. But Cain, remember, he wouldn't, well, what did he refuse to do? He probably would have had to go to Abel to get a lamb, I'm guessing. This is my sanctified imagination. You can disregard it. But what would he have to do with the lamb then? Slaughter it. What did he refuse to do? Slaughter a lamb for a sacrifice. But what did he do instead? Slaughtered his brother. It's almost as if he's saying, oh, you want a blood sacrifice? I'll give you a blood sacrifice. How about that guy you just accepted instead of me? What an awful thing. To, like The hatred, the vile, the vitriol, you can't even put it into words what Cain did. This wasn't just the first murder. This was the first murder involving fratricide or the murder of a brother by another brother. Abel's own flesh and blood. Ate, you know, Cain, who should have been Abel's keeper, as he, as he admits, ended up being his killer. The, the sin involved in this is hard to, to imagine. That's a picture of, of what hatred and a lack of love for the brethren is actually like. John's point here is to impress upon us the seriousness of the sin of hatred and neglect of the brethren. It is as the sin of Cain in killing his own brother. We might make light of it. We might think, well, what's the big deal? We don't all get along. I don't need to help so-and-so. And John is saying it's much like Cain killing Abel. That's how serious of a sin that it is. When you and I fail to truly love our brother and sister in Christ, in deed and in truth, we are being like Cain. That's what John is saying. And if that is the ongoing, unrepentant pattern of our lives, according to John in the scripture here, it shows that we have not yet been born of God. That's how serious of a matter it is. It's a reflection or an indicator of whether someone has been born of God or not. As, as John tells us in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, no unrepentant murder, no one whose ongoing habit of life involves such murder as hatred for the brethren has eternal life abiding in him. And so when you and I think of the sixth commandment and what obedience to it involves, one of the things that we should think of is love of the brethren. It's one of the things commanded by the commandment against murder. And, and how the hatred or neglect of our brethren is what is forbidden in it. This is no doubt one, one of the reasons Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. Paul says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Why? Those things are violations, among other things, of the Sixth Commandment. They are things that tend toward, as the Shorter Catechism puts it, to murder. Uh, he says, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then he says, the flip side, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
The sins of our brothers and us against them, against each other, are not a rationale or a reason or an excuse for us to stop loving one another. Part of loving one another involves bearing with one another, forgiving one another, being kind to one another. That's, that's the positive side of, of the commandment. And so I'll ask this morning, do we harbor, as, as Paul says, do we harbor bitterness and anger and wrath toward each other? Do we, do we harbor malice toward one another? Do we slander each other? If we're honest, I think these things we have to admit. These, these things that Paul mentions are not hypothetical. They are all too common among those who profess to believe in Christ. If we, if we spend five minutes just kind of thinking about it, I think we'll see uh, it, that that's the case. There are so many examples of it, it would be hard to number them all. And so, and again, it, the point is, isn't to look at someone else and say, well, I know somebody else who needs to hear this. Oh, I know somebody else who's harboring bitter and envy and all, you know, all these things in their hearts. We do that at times. And so we should search our hearts and ask God's help in doing that to see if there's any of these things in us. And if there are, we pray for forgiveness and the grace to repent of such sins, lest we grieve the Holy Spirit of God, as Paul says, by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. A lack of love for the brethren. What does Paul say there? Really, he's saying a lack of love for the brethren grieves the Holy Spirit by whom we have been sealed for the day of redemption. Well, John thankfully doesn't just give us the example of Cain. He gives us a much better example, the example of Christ, uh, who did far better than Cain did. Uh, John, he mentions Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother in verse 12. But then in verse 16, what does he say? He says, by this we know love. He showed us what hatred's like. By this we know love that he, that's Christ, he laid down his life for us. And then he adds, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers or for the brethren. So how do we know what love is? Everybody talks about love. Every other song on the radio might mention love. Uh, a lot of false notions of what love is and is about. What is the source and the standard of true brotherly love? John says to us that it is Christ himself laying down his life for us. That is how you and I come to know love. And certainly when he says, you know, we, we tend to use words like know, to know uh, about something, Sometimes we think that that just means it's an intellectual exercise. In other words, by this, I understand the intellectual content of what love is. As if this, okay, here's your theological dictionary definition of what love is. Now, that's not untrue, but it's much more than that. I think what John is saying is, here's how we know love. Here's how we experience the love of God that's in Jesus Christ, in that he came and laid down his life for us, sacrificed his life for us. We who have believed in Christ have come to know the love of God towards us in Jesus Christ. That that is it can be very easy to talk about it and to say those words and kind of dispassionately and whatnot. It's easy to talk about, but do we ever actually meditate upon these things and think about these things? Uh, meditate on the greatness of what it means in our lives that that God has set His love upon us. In Jesus Christ, do we think about how greatly we have been blessed? We who believe, uh, how greatly we have been blessed by the mercy and grace of God and love of God in Jesus Christ. Because if we did, it would change how we lived. If we did, it would change how we treat one another. When you know that you are settled in the love of God from all eternity, 
and that Christ has come and laid down his life for us out of that great love, it will enable us to love one another more than we do. And note this, Jesus wasn't just some kind of hapless, helpless victim in his death on the cross, was he? So what does John say? John doesn't just say he died. John says he laid down his life. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says this. He says, no one takes it from me, takes his life from him. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my father. You might remember when he was betrayed in the garden uh, there, uh, one of his disciples, we think it was Peter, right? What did Peter do? Peter was a, uh, a, a, uh, had a concealed carry permit, apparently, to carry a sword. Uh, and uh, you don't picture this, none of, the, you know, none of the scenes we see, none of the cartoons and pictures. We, we never see Peter with a sword on his side, but apparently it wasn't a very uncommon thing for him to do. It was a dangerous place to live at times, and Peter was carrying. He tried to defend Jesus with the sword when he was betrayed and being arrested. And what did Jesus say to him? Now, he didn't say swords are bad, don't ever do that. He didn't say don't ever defend other people, never says anything like that. But he says this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Matthew 26, 53 and 54. Jesus was not a helpless, hapless victim. He laid down his life willingly and sovereignly for the, for the salvation of his people. Jesus willingly laid down his life as an atonement for our sins. And not just that, John says that in doing this, he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. He didn't just die as a sacrifice for sin in some kind of vague general sense, uh, but as an atonement for the sins of his people. He did not just lay down his life, but did so for us who believe and for our salvation. And our Lord Jesus himself commands us to follow his example, doesn't he? It's not just John saying this. Jesus says the same thing, that we are to follow his example of self-sacrificing love for each other. John 15, verses 12 to 14, Jesus says this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he kind of spells it out, doesn't he? Greater love has no one than this. And what is it? That someone lay down his life for his friends or that a man may lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus tells us back in the Gospel of John, what does love involve? Laying down your life for your friends. And he says, do, do for each other as I've loved you. Love each other the same way. Self-sacrificially in that way. So our, our acts of love are not redemptive. We are not in any way adding to the redemption that Christ did by his own uh, sacrifice of himself. But, but our acts of love in this way are a reflection of Christ's love. And because the Lord laid down his life for us, what does John say in verse 16? Because of that, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now that word that's translated as ought in the ESV, uh, it, conv it conveys the idea of a debt 
or an obligation. It is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1.14 in the King James when he said that he was a, quote, debtor. He owed it to someone, and a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise, to preach the gospel to them. To, you know, it's a strong word. Paul is saying, I owe it to them to preach the gospel to them. It wasn't up to him to exclude this group or that group, no matter who they were, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Greek, slave or free, wise or unwise. Paul had a debt to preach the gospel to them because God had shed his love on Paul in sending Christ to save him from his sins. And so we owe it, John is saying, we, in a sense, we owe it to each other to love one another, not because any of us have done enough for each other to put us under such an obligation. Like we, we don't owe it to love each other because each other, this is terrible grammar, because each other has done enough good to us. We don't love other people because they've done it. No, that's how the world loves. The world loves those who do, who do good to them. We love other people, especially the brethren, because Christ has done good to us. And that's the point. That's really the only motive that will enable us to do what we are called to do in such a way as that. If we understand the awful depth of our sin and the debt of our sin and guilt before God, if we understand the infinite price that was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross to redeem us from our sin and misery, from our old way of life, how can we then not love one another from the heart? The more we understand the debt of our sin, and the price that was paid out of the love of God to save us from our sins, the more we will be enabled to love one another from the heart and to lay down our lives for the brothers, as John says in our text. No wonder that this is what John says in the last two verses of our text, verses 17 to 18. He says, but if anyone, you know, if we're talking about laying down our lives for the brothers, right? He says, but if anyone has the world's goods, and the material things of this world, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Or how does the love of God abide in him? And then he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in what? In deed and in truth. And so, you know, we might talk a good game. Oh, I, you know, I'd lay it on my life for somebody if, if it came to it. You know, I'd, I'd jump on the grenade. I would do whatever. Uh, we can tell ourselves those kind of things, but if we're not willing to love our brethren in tangible, even sacrificial ways, in deed and in truth, how can we imagine that God's love actually dwells within us? May the Lord search our hearts and reveal to us the ways in which we all need repentance and renewal in these things in particular. Well, we are obviously celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. It's a communion Sunday. And so I think it's especially fitting in some regard to be reminded of these things here this morning in our text. For what, what are we being reminded of in our text this morning except and even reminded of at the table? What is this table, the bread and the cup, a sign and seal of except the fact that Christ loved us and laid down his life for us? That, that is what is signified and sealed unto us in this sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, the body broken and the blood shed of the Lord Jesus for our sins, that we might have eternal life by faith in him. That is what is we are reminded of and what is signified by this table. And think about this. What, what were the Corinthians admonished and rebuked for in their observance of the Lord's Supper? Do you remember? Remember, Paul, Paul, Paul didn't pull any punches, did he? Paul had some pretty hard things to say uh, to the church in Corinth. 
Um, and what did, he, what did he rebuke them for if not for the way they treated each other and especially the poor of the brethren among them? What's he saying? He's saying they weren't loving the brethren. He didn't use those words. That's really what he, was, what he was rebuking them for. In 1 Corinthians 11, 20 to 22, Paul says this. I mean, imagine hearing this from an apostle. You know, you hear something like this from a pastor, we might think, well, you're just, you know. So some other pastor will tell me different than what this, this idiot's saying. But, but Paul says to the Corinthians there, when you come together, he's talking about church, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, I'm filling in the blanks, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You know, like he's talking about them doing kind of what we're doing, like having the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, I don't know what you think you're doing, but it isn't the Lord's Supper, whatever it is you're having here. And then he tells you why, how. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I guess they use wine. What do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, there was some kind of meal attached to their celebration of the Lord's Supper. They weren't tearing off huge hunks of bread and things. But, but the point is still the same. He's saying the way you observe the Lord's Supper is, is awful. It's not even, it can't even be called the Lord's Supper in any meaningful way because of the way they were treating each other. And then in verses 27 to 29, and I read this very often when we have the Lord's Supper, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now notice, I, I won't belabor this too much more, but Paul's solution is, well, you guys just better not have the Lord's Supper for a while. You're, you're messing this thing up. We can't have that. We're just going to put you on probation you know, for a while. No, he says, examine yourself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He doesn't want them to stop having the Lord's Supper. He wants them to stop neglecting each other first. And when he says, when he talks about discerning the body, now people have often debated what he means by that. Does he mean the bread and the body of Christ? Does he mean the body of Christ, which is the church? I think there's probably a little bit of both, but if you put a gun to my head, don't do that. But if you were to put a gun to my head and say, which is it, Pastor? I lean heavily towards the latter. The body that we are not discerning and thinking about is, is other Christians in the church. It's probably a little bit of both. The body of Christ certainly is, is prominent there. But without discerning the body, without thinking about each other and how we treat each other, especially in the, in, in the midst of the gathered church. Um, so when we come to the table this morning, let us do so in remembrance of Christ and what he has done, laying his life down for us, for our salvation let us think much on the fact that he laid down his life for us to save us from our sins. For as John says, it is by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And may the Lord Jesus Christ work in you and me by his Holy Spirit that we might come to more and more know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.19, that we might in turn grow more and more in our love for one another, even laying down our lives for the brethren. Amen.